0: hey there i'm stephanie shaw welcome to the hello hot flash podcast where midlife women can learn from guest experts and authors who discuss menopause and all that comes with this new chapter in our lives hello hot flash where we learn to control the change and not let the change control us hey hello hot flash fans want to enter for a chance to win 500 dollars in health and wellness prizes Head over to HelloHotFlash.com slash giveaway for all the details. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Hello Hot Flash, where we teach you how to control the midlife change. I'm excited to be here with my guest today, Dr. Erica Montes. She is a gynecologist, physician, and women's health expert. And again, I'm so excited to have you here as a guest today. Welcome, Dr. Erica.
1: Thank you so much, Stephanie. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, so we're not going
0: to talk about a a happy subject today, but it's a very important subject. And I think a lot of times we as women are ignorant to what goes on down there. So we're going to get deep into the information and help as many folks as we can. So we're going to actually talk about uh, cervical cancer today. Dr. Erica, again, I appreciate you and your time. Tell the audience a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. So I have been practicing now for 11 years. I went to school um, in Texas for my undergrad med school and residency in Dallas at Parkland Hospital. And I moved to Arizona, right after I got out of residency, because my husband's also a physician, not an OBGYN. He always wants to make sure I tell everyone that. (laughs) Um but he was from California, I'm from Texas, and we kind of split the difference and ended up in Arizona in the sunny state of Arizona, and we've been' pra- I've been practicing here um, for 11 years now. I um, as far as cervical cancer goes, which we'll get into in more detail, but unfortunately I have seen cervical cancer, and I think ultimately uh, talking about this subject and, um, helping those listeners learn about prevention is key. And so I'm happy to be here today. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Happy that you can share with us. So talk to us, um, tell us a little bit about cervical cancer and g- give an overview of the cancer and, and how it develops.
1: Yeah. So I would say about 96, 90%, 97% of cervical cancers are going to be caused by a virus called human papillomavirus. virus. And so we know that this virus actually not only causes cervical cancer, but it also can cause things like vulvar, vaginal cancer, um, anal cancer, head and neck cancer. So it's one of those viruses that basically is acquired. And when we're talking about cervical cancer, it's going to be uh, most of the time through sexual intercourse. And there's different types of viruses, uh, excuse me, different types of strains of this virus. And depending on the type of strain that you acquire or that you happen to get during intercourse, that is kind of what puts you more prone to it becoming cervical cancer or not. We know that there are two virus types or numbers that are uh, HPV-16 and HPV-18 that are the most likely to cause cervical cancer. And so it's important to, to, when we do our PAPs, it's always important after a a patient is over age 30, we want to screen for the cells, which tell us if there's a cell abnormality and also screen them for HPV.
0: That's important to hear because we, I mean, um, there was uh, probably about 10 years ago, the HPV commercials were out there, you know, get your kids vaccinated early and so forth, but the conversation prior and now, Wasn't happening, and now it seems like that's not a conversation anymore. So I'm happy that we're we're actually discussing that. What, when, um, so if if someone is has some symptoms of cervical cancer, what are some of those warning signs, and what are some of those symptoms?
1: Yeah, the you know the thing about cervical cancer is always going to start out as cervical dysplasia, and so what that means is there are, um, on a microscopic level. When we do either a Pap smear or a Pap test, which is just kind of uh, using a brush to swab the cervical cells and sending it to pathology, there are going to be minute changes that they see under the microscope. So it kind of starts out that way. And the the good thing about most cervical cancers is it's not very it's it's not it doesn't progress very quickly. I mean, there are those like very um virulent strains that are that could progress in a couple years but in general we know that those if if someone has cervical dysplasia it's not going you're not going to get full-blown cancer you know in a year or two it it can take up to five to ten years so that is good in a way because then if patients do kind of fall off on their screening not that we should but if they do we can, we can kind of get them back to where they need to be in order to prevent it from becoming cancer with certain treatments like colposcopy, which is uh, a procedure that we do to see what level the cervical dysplasia is at, or with a LEAP or cold knife cone procedure, which actually allows us to remove the dysplasia. And we can talk about that more in a minute, but um, I think some symptoms that patients do see as is unfortunately, because it is slow growing, it, you may not have any symptoms. So you may actually be asymptomatic. And the only way that we're going to find that cervical um, dysplasia or precancer cells is going to be through your pap smear. Now, if the cancer does become uh, more of like a, uh, what we call like a gross tumor, where we actually, when we do a speculum exam, we see a tumor or some type of um, abnormality with the cervix, then patients can tend to have very heavy bleeding. They can have um, post bleeding, which is bleeding after intercourse. And then sometimes we do see if it is a, a little bit further advanced, just abnorm- uh, abnormal discharge or foul-smelling discharge. When I worked as a resident at UT um, Southwestern or Parkland Hospital, Um, there was a section or a a ward for the gynecology oncology patients. And, um, and it was sad because we knew that we knew what kind of patient you had on the service, because you could actually it had like a particular like a certain scent to Mm -hmm. that cervical cancer. And so it's one of those things where like, that's obviously more advanced cases. Right. But the, the point I'm trying to make is a lot of times you may not have symptoms. So that's why you do have to go in to get your pap smear so we can screen you for it.
0: So we'll just get on the insurance bandwagon. Didn't, you didn't know I was going to do that. But
1: I mean, some insurance
0: are saying you don't need your pap every year. How important is it that women, especially if they have had a history of HPV, how important is it that they get their pap smear every year?
1: Yeah. So let, let me just add this in really quick before I answer that great question. Yeah. A lot of times when I talk to a patient, I am big about prevention and I always want to know family history. And like I mentioned before, HPV nine times out of 10, or excuse me, cervical cancer, nine times out of 10 is going to be caused by HPV, which is acquired through sexual intercourse. So a lot of patients it's important to realize, though, that cervical cancer usually is not hereditary or genetic. OK, because a lot of pa- and and it's hard because whenever we talk about gynecological cancers, there's there's cervical, there's uterine, there's ovarian, there's vulvar and there's vaginal and they're all different. OK, so the ovarian and the uterine can be uh, hereditary, but the the cervical vulvar and the vaginal, aren't, aren't usually hereditary. It's going to be because of HPV. So I always preface by saying, you know, just keep that in mind. I don't, I want patients or our listeners to realize that even if your aunt or your grandmother had cervical cancer, that doesn't make that, make it, make you at higher risk. So just kind of bring that up. But in general, there's kind of, there's, I feel like we're kind of divided away in a way, like us as OBGYNs and providers, um, because half of us say we still got to do your pap every year. We want to, which you know that I think it just depends, of course, on your situation and your history. And then the other half of us say we still want to see you every year for a physical exam. But the new guidelines basically show that it is okay to extend the time frame of or the um, the timing of your pap smear either between three and five years, depending on your history and your age. You know, I'm, I'm one of those that I really like for my patients to be proactive in their health care and their health decisions. So if anyone is concerned or nervous and they say, hey, I want to just get my pap every year and I'll, I'm open to it. The reason why they kind of went to that three to five year screening is because we know that HPV or the human papillomavirus can be a transient infection. So more than 90% of these of people who have um, HPV positive on their pap smear, after one to three years, not percent of those people are going to have a negative pap in the future. And that HPV, their, your immune system will fight it off and the HPV will become negative. Not that it, it can never come back, right? Because right. a lot of these viruses can live dormant in our system, but your body is fighting it off enough to say, your PAPS negative, you're not at risk for cervical dysplasia, which could ultimately turn into cervical cancer. We're, we're good to go for now. Um, where, so basically because it is a transient infection, they say, okay, if we start doing PAPS on everyone every year, there is a risk of you showing up with HPV for a couple years back to back to back. And then we're, it's kind of, we're reactive to that, right? We're like, okay, you have HPV, we have to do this, we have to do that. Not that that's a bad thing, right. but then we tend to sometimes, back in the day, unfortunately, because doctors, we didn't have as much research and as much science behind knowing HPV, um, those LEAP procedures or cold knife con- con- conization procedures were being performed on patient, on younger women who had a, whose cervix is ultimately had issues with like fertility or or um, having preterm labor because their cervix was weakened and things like that. So it's a fine balance. You know, mm-hmm. I mean if you're if you're very young and you and you are monogamous and you don't have a, a risk of, of H of problems with your PAP smear, I think it is reasonable to do your PAPS every three years but still come for a full exam. Yeah. But if you've had HPV 16 and you, you know, you and it, your body was able to fight it off, but you're still very nervous about it, and and things are showing that it's negative now, but you still kind of have that in the back of your mind. I think it's reasonable to do your pap every year. So I think having that conversation with your physician or your female healthcare provider is so important, and you make a decision together on what seems right for you.
0: You said that the HPV can lie dormant. Is there a way to get rid of HPV?
1: You know, I I would say that's a great question. I mean, I think the the more you do with your diet, your lifestyle, no, no smoking or smoking cessation, just kind of overall lifestyle changes and general health, that is going to be that is going to make the most impact on that any virus in your body from going away, you know, complete, quote unquote, completely, you know, have I seen patients to where like, I've done a leap on them, which is where I go in and I remove the bad cells or the cervical dysplasia. And then they never have an abnormal pap for like, as long as I've known them, or as long as, you know, I've been their doctor. Yeah. I mean, that can happen too. I think there is that small, small percentage though, that is still going to lie dormant. And then like, if the patient ends up having you know, a stress or sometimes even pregnancy because your immune system goes down. Or if later in life you become, you have, um, a, an autoimmune disorder that pops up like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or something like that. I mean, that could make you more prone to it coming back. I don't think there's ever going to be a time where it would, it would be, completely gone. But I think your body would get keep it in so much in check that you could never see it again, or it would never come back positive again, depending on wh- how your health is and, and what you're doing to keep yourself healthy.
0: And that makes perfect sense, because we all have cancer, we all have some type of cancer in our body. So it's what we do day to day that helps us keep that in, in control. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Besides HPV, and forgive me if you, you uh, mentioned this, what are some other ways that uh, a person can get cervical cancer?
1: So, like any cancer in our body, if there, if 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 there is some type of cell growth or unbalanced check in in the cell, the way that they're reproducing then you could have another type of, of cancer called, um, adenocarcinoma, which is a little bit different from the HPV cancer, cancer, which is called squamous squamous cell, um, cancer. So that cancer could just be one of those random type of cancers that you is not necessarily caused by HPV, but it can be caused by your risk factors and, and things like that on your health and, 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 you know, it, it's hard to say if that one is truly, would, would that one be genetic? I, I haven't read that or seen that. But, you know, maybe there is a little a little bit of that as well. But um, I think those, like I said, most cancers, though, or cervical cancers will be caused by HPV. And then there's that, like, small, small percentage that can be that adenocarcinoma, which is not necessarily HPV related.
0: Important to hear uh, there, so there's so much advanced technology now. So you know, instead of a mammogram, some women are often opting for thermography. There's liquid biopsy now. Where do you see the technology and medical advances advancements going as it relates to HPV cervical cancer?
1: You know, I think the one, number one thing, of course, is prevention, and we know that uh, we know that HPV vaccination is going to be key with, with um, a lot of these illnesses and, and diseases. Now there is FDA approval to recommend the HPV vaccinations for, when, for patients up to age 45. It used to be 26. Um, and now it actually has extended to age 45 because they are they were seeing great um improvements and decrease in cervical cancer risk with those patients that were vaccinated compared to the ones that that are not. Um so above all, that is you know one of those techno technologies or healthcare advancements as far as vaccines go that we do tend to see. I personally have never seen any patients have a very adverse reaction to the HPV vaccine. I offer it a lot to my patients. My patients know that that I'll bring it up. And I actually got the vaccinations myself when I was uh, 24 or 26. Um, So I'm a big proponent of that. But I think in general, as far as um, cervical cancer treatments go, I I know that I've heard or that I've kind of seen that they're looking into doing some type of maybe immunotherapy where it helps like your they do. I think there is that they also have that for certain other, for other cancers, such Mm -hmm. as breast cancer and things, depending on the type of cancer it is. Um, so what we know is that because your body may not be able to fight off that virus as well alone, they can use the immunotherapy to help fight off the HPV virus. And then that is what can be a, a treatment, um, for towards a cervical cancer.
0: So before we even started the podcast, we started talking about the HPV vaccine and how there's this huge marketing campaign going on to get kids vaccinated, boys and girls. So is that important for men to know that they potentially need to have the HPV vaccine and is it safe for them up to 40 plus as well?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, remember, half half of their half of the puzzle right because they can be carriers for HPV and give it to their partners and vice versa you know HPV doesn't necessarily tend to affect um, men like it does women or those with uh, with the cervix but basically what we know is that they there still is a risk of anal cancers with for them and even penile cancers so any protection that they can do with getting the vaccination for themselves and for their partners or future partners is key. So I think it's it's really important to still get um, school-age children vaccinated and even up through age 45 for men as well.
0: So what if you have HPV? Should you still get vaccinated afterwards? Can
1: it help? Yeah, that's a great question. So the studies say that If you, let's say you, you tested positive for HPV and whenever you do a pap test, it's not going to tell you what strain you have, unless you have 16 or 18, because the lab automatically tests for those, because we know that those are the most high risk HPV strains. So the newest HPV vaccines only cover nine HPV strains. But those are pretty common ones. So what I would say is even though you don't know what type you have, if it happens to not be 16 or 18, you still want to get vaccinated for HPV in general because number one, you never know if you're going to have a new partner, even if you are married or you're in a monogamous relationship and they could possibly have a different strain that is covered by that HPV vaccination. And then number two, The studies say, you know, maybe it's not going to help as much with the HPV that you currently have. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you have one of the highest risk ones, 16 or 18, and your body's already producing antibodies against that strain, a a little bit of extra antibodies that you get from the HPV isn't going to hurt. So as far as HPV vaccinations go, if you have tested positive in the past on your pap test, I think it still makes sense to get vaccinated because you are able to have some antibodies from your natural immune system and then also from the vaccination. So anything will help to, to help prevent that. Um, virus from continuing to replicate and causing um, the cells to become more likely to turn into cancer.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. So um, the majority of our audience are perimenopausal women. Is cervical cancer more severe for women who are going through perimenopause?
1: You know, I would say what I have seen in my clinical practice is that Whenever a patient is young, in the younger age group, like under four, 35 and, and to t- 21 to 35 per se versus the patients who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, it can be a little bit harder to clear that virus um, than the younger patients can. And, you know, it may be for a multitude of reasons, but I think that's why we have kind of extended the, the time frame to start. Pap smear testing at age 21 because teenagers are really likely to to um, clear it from their system, and then um, we are doing the HPV testing after you turn 30 because that will tell us or give us a better idea as to what the progression may be of of this virus for you. But yeah, unfortunately, I do tend to see that if I have um, perimenopausal or even menop- postmenopausal patients who are um, acquiring. Hiring HPV, either it was a past infection that came back, or they have a new partner and they have a new HPV. I feel like I am having to do more uh, leaps and colposcopies on them in order to um, get rid of of the of this issue.
0: It's just something to be careful of, something to watch, and that's why getting your Pap tests and going to your doctor is so 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 important. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about, so I I was talking with someone again, we were talking about breast cancer and we are uh, airing this in October because of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, We were talking about the disparity around um, breast cancer diagnoses and also around treatment in one white community versus an African-American community. In my mind, I immediately went to finances, but um the physician actually talked about genetic differences is there any um the cervical cancer disproportionately affect certain populations have you found that at all
1: you know i i have but i haven't found it to be more of a genetic cause does that make sense so i think it ends up what i have seen myself and what i think studies have shown like as in terms of like, for example, for Latinas or women in col- women of color in general, I think, you know, number one, limited access to health care, which, you you know, you just mentioned, or finances. Um, with Latinas, there is unfortunately a lot of cultural taboos towards like reproductive and sexual health. And so anything that has to do with the, below the belt, they don't want to talk about it, they don't want to know about it. I, and so that can potentially increase their risk of, cervical cancer. I think that that trend or that thought process is shifting more towards being more open and things. But I still have those patients who, I remember I had a patient um, that I saw not too long ago She's like, uh, she, I walk in and I'm like, hi, I'm Dr. Montes." And, you know, I'm talking to her and she's like, I just want to start out by saying that I'm so sorry, but I rescheduled this appointment two times. And this is my, this is like my third try or what have you. And she was a young Latina. She was probably like 22 or 23. And I said, oh, I was like, oh, what happened? Like, are you okay? Do you have a problem? And she's like, you know what? I was so, I'm so embarrassed to come. Like, I just, you know, I don't talk about this with my family members, with my mom, with anyone. And I just, every time the day would come, I would have to cancel it because I was so embarrassed. And so, you know, it's things like that, that make me realize that we, even though it is improving, we're still, we still have those um, taboos that kind of are within certain cultures. And then, um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think, I think in the end it's more, and then one other thing is, part of it may be also like a limited number, like again, for Latinas, like limited number of Spanish speaking physicians or physicians that they can feel comfortable with. And even for just women of color, color in general, like you have a better rapport, they kind of know where you're coming from. Um, And so I think that also plays a factor. So of course trying to promote medicine to um, our, our populations and, And, you know, helping our communities in general with more women of color or physicians of color would help as well.
0: I totally agree with that. But as you said, it feels like it's taking a shift. Yeah. Um, When I talk to my daughter-in-law, she will have conversations that I would have never had with my mom or thought to have with my mom. But they're really important conversations as well. Um, And that's the only way that we're going to prevent things like this from happening to folks. So, yeah, I love that. Well, I, so, some people geek out about this kind of stuff like I do, like I want to know all about HPV strands. I don't know why, but, you know, I just kind of geeked out about it. So it, are there other reputable sources that people can um, our listeners can go to to find out more information?
1: Yeah, there's um, one source that I like to use and I even print out. Um material for my patients is our American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology or ACOG.org, ACOG.org. There's a lot you can type in the search bar any type of female um, health issue or condition and they'll give like a patient FAQ on that particular subject. So I really recommend that. And it's all evidence-based and it's and it's what we as OBGYNs follow. So something really important to look at. And then as far as cancers in general, I do feel as though the American Cancer Society or ACS does have just good statistics and information in general about um, any type of cancer. Um, But yeah, I think ACOG is like my number one resource for patients. And then I even use it to look up articles or scientific articles and things.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's good to hear. I'm happy there's support out there. Oh, and yeah. talking to your your um OBGYN is super helpful as well. Being open, having those conversations, um, you know, saying what you need to say. It's yeah, I I, I have a weird close relationship with my OBGYN, like outside the office. So inside the office, I'm like, this is just really creepy. <laughs> but I can ask anything I want. So that it's so-
1: all good. Yeah, I mean, you know every, I go to work every day, just like an open book. I'm like, I'm ready for whatever they ask me, whatever comes my way, whatever I see. So it's, it's kind of fun, but, um, you know, you learn a lot. Like, you're like, Oh, someone asked me that question last week. Okay. Let's talk about it again. So it's, it's just, it's good to, you know, what I always tell patients is, you know, like, for example, if they want to see me, like, I'm happy to see them if they're not in my community um, as just kind of like a telehealth visit as a second opinion or what have you. Cause I guess, you know, they just feel comfortable with me and they follow me through my social media. But I always tell, I always tell my community, you know, if, if you don't feel comfortable with someone, there's another OBGYN down the street and ask your friends, see who they see, who they really like, see who they have felt comfortable with, had a connection with, Um, and yeah, just ask anything, you know, it's a, it's, it's confidential. We're not gonna, you know, it's something that we want you to feel like you're actually getting your voice heard and you're getting what you need done and, and, and evaluated. So we're, you know, we're here to help you. Mm
0: -hmm. So what, I have one, actually two more questions for you, but the second one's Mm -hmm. kind of quick. What are you reading or listening to right
1: now? So, yeah, thanks for asking. So, my mother-in-law is awesome, and we, I'm kind of like her. I talk to her about anything uh-huh. <laughs> instead of my mom as well. Um, but she she always likes to send me, like, cool books and things. So this book is called um, Lady Tan Circle of Women, and it's about a OBGYN in the 15th century in China. And so I, I just started it like not a couple of days ago, but it's already so fascinating and I'm just excited to get into it and just kind of, I love the history and I like to see like what was done back then, like how, how much have we advanced to the, to this day? And so again, Lady, Lady Tan Circle of Women, and I I've, I'm excited to read it.
0: I'm going to make sure that the listeners have that information as well um dr erica how can people find
1: you yeah thank you so um my handles at the dot modern dot muhead means woman in spanish because i do i do a lot of things in english but i do definitely try to reach out to my spanish-speaking community um, and provide information for them as well and my website is the modern as well
0: i so, i'll put a link to that in the in the show notes.
1: Thank you so much for your
0: time. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Thank you so much, Stephanie. I appreciate it and and thanks for bringing up a great subject that everyone needs to hear about.
0: Yeah. So everyone, thank you once again for listening to Hello Hot Flash where we help you control the midlife change. Make sure to check out the show notes where we will include links to the subjects that we covered today. Everyone, here's to your health. Hey, you want to enter for a chance to win prizes valued at $500? Our generous guests are gifting holistic skincare products, science-backed supplements, a nightgown designed to help decrease night sweats. Say what? And a jetty pack designed to help you get stronger with every step. Head over to hellohotflash.com giveaway for all the details.